Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. This week it is an Ask Justin week where um, I will answer one of your questions. And I've had three questions this week. Uh, One of them is quite big, so it might only be one question that I do this week. But um, anyway, here goes. So this first question is about um, consent and vaccinations, and it's very interesting. So here's the question. Everyone I know and everyone I follow on social media is very pro-vaccines, and so I kind of go along with the crowd on this one, without really knowing much, something I'm not proud of and want to change. All of the discourse I see online is very loud and angry. I'm sure it's with good reason, but I struggle to build my own stance on it based on this. I was wondering if you could answer something along the lines of, how can we practice consent in discussing and making choices around vaccines, whilst also protecting each other and especially the most vulnerable in our society? I know it's a big and sensitive topic, especially at the moment, so totally okay if it's not something you want to tackle right now, but I thought I'd just put it out there in case. Well, thank you very much. And as that email came with a load of other praise for the podcast as well, so thank you very much for that. Um, So I think the first thing to say here is that consent isn't just about individuals making consensual transactions with other people, right? Like consent is something which is both individual that happens, can operate and should operate on an individual level, but also operates on this broader societal level, okay? Um, And when we talk about consent here, we're talking about the freedom to choose. When we frame consent as freedom to choose, we can understand that it's much bigger than just this uh, individual one-on-one kind of sexual uh, binaried um, yes or no um, do we have consent, do we not have consent kind of approach to consent, as you may have listened to on the podcast, on several podcasts that me and Meg John did together, as well as a recent podcast about consent education that Elsie Whittington and I did together on here, but also, as you might have learned in my book, um, Can We Talk About Consent? Available now from all good, leading, non-leading, and non-good bookshops. Please buy that. It's for over 14s, and the illustrations are amazing. This means that there are always limits to our freedoms, and it's important that we have limits to our, on our freedoms so that we don't unfairly trample on the freedoms of others, and that's what's going on here. Individual freedom is collective freedom, and collective freedom is individual freedom. So we can't really be free if we live in a society where we can't do things with other people. Like Our freedoms are not maximised if, uh, if we, for the rest of time, can't go hug people or can only ever do things by ourselves or can't get or people don't work in shops or we don't have or we don't have a health service or we don't have a society like we need collective freedom without collective freedom we don't have individual freedoms and the and the collective freedom here is based on the individual freedoms for people to live so most of us during lockdown and um even in, and in between the lockdowns, have been giving up smaller freedoms, i.e. seeing people, in order to give other people much larger freedoms, uh, for example, not dying or getting seriously ill. Okay, So we do this to be considerate of others as well, and we do this from an innate understanding of our interconnectedness with other people, right? That um, the people out on the street might not be directly connected to us, but we understand that they have their own worlds where they have interconnected people living with them too, and they understand that about us. There is this kind of consideration going on and this understanding of interconnectedness, which is really, really important. And in the sense of, I think, what what we've tapped into here with coronavirus, and uh, I think, which I think is really important, is this understanding that our health is dependent on 
the health of other people just as much as it is ourselves. Like we need other people to be healthy. So this is where we need to have this understanding of individual consent and this broader kind of societal collective consent, right? I've written more about this at my website for young people, um, which there's a link to this in the in the notes uh, if you scroll down. But also, if you just search for Bish Freedoms COVID, you'll find the article. So one of the things that we're kind of talking about here as well is like social norms and how fear and shame is being used to um, affect social norms. And social media is a place of fear and shame. And you say it's very loud and very angry. Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? It's terrible. Um, and to an extent, particularly in social media, the fear and shame is used to shape or reshape, reshape social norms. So what is acceptable? What it is that we should be doing? Uh, you know, how is we live our lives? Um, a possible for this is hegemony. So hegemony is... Um, the common sense way of thinking or what we are told is the common sense way of thinking about how we should have relationships, how we should relate to society, how society relates to us and the sense in which uh, we respond to power and how power responds to us and how the um, our even our descriptors and our understanding of the world comes is shaped by our relationship to power and how power relates to us. Does that kind of make sense? Probably not, but anyway. But anyway, social media is like a battleground for this kind of stuff, these kind of common sense ideas about how we should live our lives, social norms. And social media is the battleground for this. Like social media, it's commonly called the culture war. It used to be called like the political correctness. It's like called wokeness now. Um, and uh, the, anger, the anger and the shouting is um, other tools that are used in order to shape or reshape what we think is what we think is common sense what it is that we should be doing sadly vaccines have become part of that and whether people get vaccinated is part of that this is very bad <laughs> this is extremely bad which i'll come on to in a bit but not all social norms are bad like some social norms are actually good right we probably don't notice the social norms one really good example of this is social norms about seat belts um I think that the reason I know this is that I did it once in criminology during my law degree. But basically, um, we all just put our seatbelts on when we're in cars now. And we don't do that because we worry that the police are going to stop us if we're not wearing a seatbelt, right? Because that's never going to happen. We just do it because we think it's a good thing to do. And we think most people do it and it's a social norm. This is true of like most social norms. Like um, the crime rate would be way higher um, if we didn't have social norms and if we didn't kind of believe in a sense of social norms, right? Because the likelihood of getting caught for crimes is actually pretty low. Um, and so, and generally also, I think this, this kind of builds into an idea that actually human beings are, by the most, on the, the vast majority of human beings are uh, cooperative and really pretty decent and want to do a good job and want to do th good things for other people and don't want to commit crimes. Sadly, we live in a system where um, uh, some folk are not able to believe that or not be able to behave that way because those people aren't protected enough in society. Anyway, I'm kind of drifting off the subject, but I'm talking about social norms here, okay? And social norms are changing all the time, which means that they're always kind of being contested over. And at the moment, they're being contested in social media, but they get contested elsewhere too. Um, some social norms are really bad, like homophobia, uh, transphobia, um, sadly, still 
ridic uh, ridiculously common and it's a norm that we want to get rid of. Um, some social norms are really, really bad. I think what a lot of people do around social norms is to think, well, the, the social norms that I'm really familiar with are really damaging to me personally. And so we might think that all social norms are bad. And I think it's really important to that we do take time to distinguish the difference between good social norms and bad social norms. Um, but also to see to consider actually where those norms come from and who is invested in us behaving uh, in particular norms. And that's a broader political point that I'm not going to go into. But these norms subtly change all the time. One really good example of this is mask wearing, right? So um, none of us were wearing masks. The idea in February last year, the idea of us in the UK wearing masks to go shopping, it's like just seemed really, you know, that that would not happen. That was not normal. That was no social norm to do that. And now the social norm is to wear masks. We'll feel a lot more confident going to a supermarket if everyone else is wearing a mask. And we'll feel okay about wearing masks now. Like, pretty much, apart from Lawrence Fox, but, you know. But the social norm that we're talking about here and that you're talking about in your question is around vaccine hesitancy, okay? And this is really, really important because we want many, many people to get a vaccine. And the reason we need lots of people to get a vaccine is because we need herd immunity. And for this... I'm going to go to the World World Health Organization definition of herd immunity. Herd immunity is also known as population immunity. It's the di it's the indirect protection from an infectious disease that happens when a population is immune either through vaccination or immunity developed through previous infection. The WHO supports achieving herd immunity through vaccination by not allowing disease to spread through any amount of the population as this would result in unnecessary cases and deaths. Herd immunity against COVID-19 should be achieved through protecting people through vaccination, not exposing them to the pathogen. Vaccines train our immune systems to create proteins that fight disease, known as antibodies, just as would happen when we're exposed to disease. But crucially, vaccines work without making us sick. Vaccinated people are protected from getting the disease in question by passing on the, and passing on the pathogen, breaking any chains of transmission. Um, this is the important bit, I think. To safely achieve herd immunity against COVID-19, a substantial proportion of a population would need to be vaccinated, lowering the overall amount of virus able to spread in the whole population. One of the aims of working towards herd immunity is to keep vulnerable groups who cannot get vaccinated, e.g. due to health conditions like allergic reactions to the vaccine, safe and protected from the disease. Okay, the, percent the percentage of people who need to be immune in order to achieve herd immunity varies with each disease. For example, herd immunity against measles requires about 95% of the population to be vaccinated. The remaining 5% will be protected by the fact that measles will not spread amongst those who are vaccinated. We don't know exactly what it is for COVID-19. I've read various reports that we might need 70% of the population to be vaccinated. Uh, I'm not an expert on this. This is where you need to get informed yourself. So there are so in order for us all to be safe from the virus, in order for the most vulnerable to be safe from the virus, we need to get a lot of people vaccinated. And there are many barriers to giving people lots of different vaccinations. So some of the barriers are the logistics of getting a, a vaccine out there, the refrigeration, um, the manufacture of it, um, the expense of buying all the vaccines. Wealthy countries like the UK have been able to buy millions and millions of, of vaccines from lots of different sources. Um, and also another barrier is universal basic service. We have the universal basic service of um, the national health system, which has enabled us to 
But certainly the NHS has been a success story here where because the NHS has been trusted to vaccinate everyone, um, the vaccine rollout seems to be going pretty well in the UK. Another barrier, though, as I've already mentioned, is vaccine hesitancy. Now, this is not the same as being an anti-vaxxer. And there are lots of reasons for being hesitant about using, about taking a vaccine. Uh, Again, I'm going to just read out a quote from the BMJ, which is really good on this. Again, I've got a link to this in the um, in the notes. Vaccine hesitancy characterized by uncertainty and ambivalence about vaccination is a legitimate viewpoint, underscoring the failure or lack of effective public health messaging. People who are hesitant can still be convinced of the vaccine's safety, efficacy and necessity. And most importantly, they are not anti-vaxxers. Okay, so some people are hesitant about having a vaccine. Okay, and this is something that we need to be kind about, be aware of. And the reason why people might be hesitant about using a vaccine are many and very varied. So they often just relate to a confidence in the information that is given or the people giving the information or the system in which the information is given. It could be about somebody's values, the kind of lifestyle they want to live, what they believe being healthy is, um, it to do with, uh, often to do with like uh, their own views around um, ecology and humans and that kind of stuff. And also it's about trust and crucially trust is a really big issue here. And there are lots of different reasons why different people might be untrustworthy of health services. Um, I also have a vaccine hesitancy. Uh, My my vaccine hesitancy is that I'm really afraid of needles. It's really bad. I'm probably going to pass out. I thought I'm going to get the vaccine. There's a high likelihood I might pass out when doing it. So I need to tell everyone about that before. I'll let you know how it goes. Follow me on social media. (laughs) More about that later. (laughs) Um, So being hesitant about vaccines and even what hesitancy means is very very different for different people one of them uh one of the the many one of the very understandable reasons for vaccine hesitancy is racism and the bmj have got a really good article about this which i'll link to there is historic racism where um uh, experiments on black people for example you might know about the syphilis experiments in the u.s um there are structural reasons for racism too um where People where the health inequalities are baked into a system. So um, we've seen that more black and minority ethnic people in the UK have died from uh, died from and been affected by coronavirus. Also, people might have experienced racist treatment at the hands of a uh, healthcare practice or the NHS or the healthcare system. The NHS is wonderful, but it isn't perfect, and it's something that um, we'll need to strive to do better at. Anyway, back to your question. What you're getting from social media is basically everybody either trying is is everybody trying to and certainly what you're getting from your friends is people trying to counter vaccine hesitancy. Okay, but actually, what's happened is that it's moved over more into this culture war of pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, which I think is incredibly unhelpful. And it's a very unhelpful binary. Um, Shout out to uh, Meg John and Alexi and Taffy for their book, Life Isn't Binary. Life isn't binary. Binaries are usually incredibly unhelpful. Anyway, being shouted at and fear and shame don't work because they go what is known as against the grain of cognition. When I was doing some research for this, I found this really great article, which I'll just get up now. It's called... 
Going with the grain of cognition, applying insights from psychology to build support for childhood vaccination. This was written in 2016. A lot of this is really relevant now, I think, for coronavirus. Uh, again, I've got a link to that in the notes. And this uh, paper is basically saying that we need to go with the grain of cognition. We need to we need to understand the reasons for vaccine hesitancy, and to go with to be with the person where they are and to kind of go in the direction of, of where they're heading rather than putting up a wall and preventing them uh, from from changing their view or from taking in the information. I'm going to give some examples from this uh, uh, in the next few minutes. So lo- there are lots of backfire effects that we need to avoid uh, in this, and this paper kind of talks about them. Uh, some of these back, some of these Backfire effects are attitude polarization. I'm just going to get this up. Attitude polarization. When confronted with belief incongruent information, people tend to selectively call to mind evidence and arguments in opposition to the information, leading them to cling to their original beliefs even stronger than before. Uh, the social norms backfire effect, where highlighting an undesirable behavior as being regrettably frequent, for example, uh, not getting vaccinated, can backfire in communicating a descriptive norm, signalling that the behaviour is common and therefore normal and approved of by others. Uh, another backfire effect is the group-directed threat. Um, messages that criticise a particular group, such as vaccine-hesitant parents, can lead to that group to show stronger group affiliation and greater resistance to out-group recommendations, which is where we get anti-vaccine groups coming from. And also fear appeals backfire effect. So this is where... We have persuasive messages that induce fear to encourage individuals to accept the messages' recommendations, and they can potentially backfire by triggering defensive and avoidant responses. It's sometimes thought that fear appeals can work, but they don't really work if people feel that they um, can't do the thing which is being asked of them. Now, what might be happening at the moment is that there is a very clear fear appeal because everyone can see coronavirus is having this incredibly damaging that effect it's killing loads and loads of people and it's probably killed many people um that we know right so many of us are grieving and mourning uh the, the deaths of people who have died prematurely because of coronavirus but also we see it in the news we hear about our friends getting it we hear about the effects of long covid it's something that we don't want to get and also we don't want other people to get so there is a bit of a built-in fear appeal which there isn't usually with vaccinations because usually vaccinations of children are for um for viruses and illnesses that we don't see because vaccination has worked really well does that make sense so you know when we're vaccinating people for um measles uh, there isn't the fear appeal of well, you don't want to get measles because we've been vaccinating people for measles and it's no it's no longer the problem that it was. Although there was an uptick 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 in uh, measles cases a few years ago after there was some anti vaccine myths spreading around. Anyway, um, so there are lots of backfire effects which we need to avoid, and social media doesn't avoid them. I think social media. I think you're right, uh, dear listener, that social media actually falls into the trap of a lot of these backfire effects and I'm going to go through some of these now. Um, so I'm going to go through some of the um, some of the ways that the authors of this paper suggest that we might um, uh, avoid some of these backfire effects and I'm literally going to read out a few interesting quotes. So in order to avoid the familiarity backfire effect it's best to begin by stating the facts then introduce the myth then debunk it and then finally replace the myth, replace the myth with a scientific fact. Crucially, the myth should never be repeated. Okay, 
So, and here's another one. Similarly, to avoid the overkill backfire effect, communicators should present a few rather than many counterarguments to a myth, since numerous counterarguments take more cognitive efforts process, and thus reducing the potency of this of the correction. So, the first two of these here are literally about how understanding how people process information and and how uh, if they're given if they're presented with. So, in the in the paper, they talk about people were presented like five myths about the measles vaccine and five facts about the measles vaccine. And then half an hour later, they asked them, well, do you remember these? And they remembered them, but they couldn't remember which were the myths and which were the facts. So what actually happened was, because you end up repeating the myth, people still remember it. And then if that's if that concurs with their values, then it's going to backfire because then they're going to repeat those myths, right? Uh, the second one here also is that we need to avoid the overkill backfire effect, which is that we need to state a few pertinent facts and bits of information rather than because it's hard to process every, all of the information to take it in and it re- reduces the potency of the correction and so therefore we don't change our minds. Okay, The next two are about more to do with um, values and beliefs and also social norms. So, quote, messages couched in terms of an individual's pre-existing beliefs and values are more likely to shift attitudes than those that are incongruent with their values. So the key here is, it's uh, I think that the, what we're talking about here is motivational interviewing. So uh, this would happen with a healthcare practitioner, like a health advisor at a sexual health service. Uh, shout out to health advisors who have been doing so much work, doing contact tracing during coronavirus. Health advisors have been uh, undermined uh, since the uh, Lansley reforms of the NHS. We need to have more health advisors back in sexual health clinics to do absolutely vital, vital work. Uh, shout out to health advisors. I love you. You're amazing. Uh, what a health advisor would do is to do what's known as motivational interviewing, where they would try to get to the source of someone's pre-existing beliefs and get them to see that the behavior that they need to change is actually congruent with them. So it's to work with them, it's to work in the with with the grain of, in the direction of. And another thing is to really understand more like affirmative social norms and to understand that a lot of the a lot of what it is um a lot of our social norms are things that we don't necessarily see or kind of understand. So here's another quote from the article. Despite growing parental concern, vaccination rates are still high in most communities, between 90 and 95%. So communicating this high level of community endorsement may be an effective approach for leveraging support for vaccination. So this might be another good way to go too, where we basically say, look, if there is any vaccine hesitancy, well, look at all these people getting vaccines. So when people are, um, when we hear about people getting vaccinated, uh, data recording, we've had over in the UK, over 20 million people have been vaccinated. It seems that in some communities that is um, really, really high and in some communities it's a bit lower, but th- this is still an ongoing process and some communities might uh, increase their levels of vaccination. Again, I'll put some links in the in the description for the episode. But communicating this, uh, this, the high levels of vaccinations that we're having at the moment uh, might be really effective in recreating this idea of social norm. Okay. Also, just in the way that we we wear masks, wearing masks in a supermarket is a social norm. Um, the idea of getting vaccinated feels like a social norm. Okay. Um, so an approach which recognises that everyone has different hesitancies or potential different hesitancies for getting vaccinated, um, some of these hesitancies might be more understandable than others, might be a better and 
more useful and more valuable approach to what you're saying is the uh, the shouting and the the anger of social media. Um, so this kind of more consensual approach, which recognizes that everyone has different needs and wants, um, might be the best way to go. So here are a few takeaways, a bit of uh, advice from what I've learned so far, that we could just give on social media. We could give accurate information, replace the myth with the facts, but don't repeat the myth. Uh, we could just not overload people with information. We could encourage people to reflect their, on their own values and think about what might motivate them to do the thing, i.e. get vaccinated, and how we, might we make that easier. But also speaking for ourselves, like putting photos up of others being vaccinated and affirming, and having, affirming the, the positive social norms that are out there and saying, speaking for ourselves and saying, look, I think it's important for me to get vaccinated. I'm going to go, even though I'm scared of needles. I'll post a picture of me once I've done it, uh, and then I'll go home and just collapse and have a cup of tea or something or whatever. You know, I'll be po I'll be posting things that are affirmative. So yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Um, that actually the very loud and angry discourse is part of the discourse, capital T, capital D on the discourse there, and it has become part of this. I think very unhealthy cultural and actually it doesn't get in anyone anywhere because it does have this effect of hardening up people's positions and when you harden people's positions and it becomes a wall then the only weapons in that war become fear and shame and and actually if we want to really get to the heart of the issue that we're talking about which is vaccine hesitancy those things aren't going to work what we need is this much more nuanced more consensual more heterogeneous approach i hope you find that helpful before we go any further, if you have a question that you would like to ask me for an upcoming Ask Justin episode of Culture Sex Relationships, then please send them to me directly, culturesexrelationships at gmail.com. Culturesexrelationships at gmail.com. I can't promise to answer all questions, but I'll answer the ones I think I can do. Okay, on with the next question. Okay, the next question is... I work with teenagers in my private practice and run a training course for counsellors wishing to work with children and young people. I wonder if you could discuss the following question in an Ask Justin show if you feel it would interest your patrons. Well, it might interest my patrons and also non-patrons, making this one free. How to support under-21s in consensual decision-making re-sex. I'm particularly interested in the decision-making or not of those young people who say the following. I have to have sex or they will tell everyone at school I won't. It's what you do to keep a relationship. Blowjobs aren't sex, and they are expected, of course, etc., etc. I'm struck by their lack of knowledge around consent and choice. Uh, thank you for that excellent question. I can't go into massive detail about this because I have uh, just written a book about this. Can we talk about consent, which is out now, available at all shops? I guess we're buying things online, but it's available everywhere online. Published by Quarter Kids. It's for 14, ages 14 and up. Um, a lot of adults have been reading it saying it's been really interesting and they've liked it. I probably don't talk about my work enough on this show, but anyway, that's my book. It's out now. Please buy it. Um, I talk a, a lot of, I talk about this kind of stuff a lot in that book. It's very comprehensive. I've also got a website for young people, uh, which covers comp consent really comprehensively too. Again, I've got a link for this particular the, the uh, consent stuff in the notes for the show but my website is bishuk.com it's one of the leading relationships and sex education resources for young people worldwide um 
UNESCO earlier last year said it was unique and innovative and highlighted it as one of the best websites out there, so it's good. I've also got a consent teaching pack for practitioners working with young people at my website, bishtraining.com, or if you just Google consent, te teaching, consent teaching pack, Bish Training, then you'll find it. I think it's £11 or something. No, £12. There are lots of different activities in there to work uh, interactively with young people in interesting uh, and experiential ways where they get to learn how consent feels and how to practice it rather than just telling them what it is. So that's me selling my stuff. So I'm not going to go into huge detail, and also I don't want this podcast to be super long, but what strikes me about um, from your question is that they really do understand <laughs> consent quite well. Like Because consent is really about they've they really understood how their freedoms and choices are limited and they're limited by what we call what i call in the book should stories or what we might call hegemony uh, which i talked about previously and they're also mediated by the relationship context within which consent is supposed to operate right so the the power structures and the power balances that are at play in the relationships that they're in make navigating consent really difficult and so everything that they're saying there is yeah they they i mean they get it i think that it sounds to me like they don't understand what they might understand what consent is they might understand what the legal definition of consent but it might be that um they're struggling to navigate it because of the very powerful messages telling them that they don't have freedom and choices and that actually they need to behave in a particular way and so the big thing we need to do there is what I would do with these young people is to work with them around, okay, well, what are the what are the messages we receive around consent? What are the messages we receive about sexuality? What are the messages we receive about relationships? Where do they come from? And who in whose interests are they? How can we understand these for ourselves? And how to how can we begin to both tune into our needs, communicate what it is that we want, and also counter all of these incredibly strong powerful messages and they are strong and powerful um i have to tell i have to have sex or they'll tell everyone at school i won't like the double standard slut shaming that happens with young women at school is a nightmare it continues to be so i think sadly things have not really changed a great deal in sex and relationship education or in the treatment of sexual harassment in schools. sadly too many schools have a culture wherein this is not challenged and there isn't the counterbalance, the countervailing kind of force of high quality, comprehensive relationships and sex education in schools. The reason why is that it's it's structural, schools aren't given enough money or support, but another part of it is because the people who are being asked to deliver relationships and sex education themselves have had very bad relationships and sex education, so they don't know what good looks like and they've not been able to be offered training. Additionally to that, another political rant is that many of the people who are able to deliver relationships and sex education are either no longer around uh, or are in um, extremely precarious self-employed positions. I, for one, am a self-employed sex and relationships education consultant with over 20 years experience, um, but it's almost impossible to have a job doing this. Like so many people have, have had to leave their jobs, so many charities have folded or... Um, had to cut costs uh the it, i mean i could go on 
<laughs> I won't. Um, so there are like huge structural issues in play. It's like it's a big. This is like a huge issue, and I think that we need to make sure that we work with young people where they are, because actually, if we ask the right questions and we encourage them to think about where all this stuff comes from and encourage them to think about the broad topics, not just consent, but power and gender and sexuality, then they'll get it. And then they'll, we need to give them the tools. I think young people are sick of being told what consent is rather than being given any of the tools to understand how it feels and how um, they might go about um, practicing it. So we can't talk about wishes and desires um, freedoms and choices without talking about our capacity to experience these and that our capacity to experience those are unfairly distributed. It's still sadly the case, although some of this does exist for men, but it's more okay for men to um, to have their wishes and desires met around sex, so long as it's within the very narrow framework of normative sexuality, uh, which is penis and vagina sex and penis and vagina sex with a woman right uh, if any young man is wanting to has a wish or desire to do anything other than that then it's extremely dangerous for many young men uh, because of homophobia biphobia but also just slut shaming and uh, non-normative sex shaming and how we're not meant to have sex which is uh, pleasurable we're meant to have sex which is reproductive and if it's pleasurable then it's a side effect but um Ultimately, we're meant to be having, in inverted commas, normal sex. But also, our capacity to have our wishes and desires and our freedoms and choices to uh, be fulfilled um, is also unfairly distributed around everything else. It's really difficult, particularly for young people, but for, for all of us, to really tune into what it is that we want and to do things that... Um, to, to, to do those things. Like... A good example I have around this is around when I choose a bar of chocolate, which is one of the activities that we have, that I have in the consent teaching pack, and it's available at the website, and I talk about it in the book, that when I go to a shop and buy a chocolate bar, I'm a 45-year-old man who teaches young people about consent, right? And I'm like an inverted commas consent expert. I still feel like there are several should stories around the chocolate bar that I should or shouldn't be buying, okay? And they come from, well... I'm a 45-year-old man, so what should I, what should and shouldn't I be choosing from from the stand? So, you know, it's like not, it's seemingly not okay for me to get a curly whirly, right, or a Milky Way because they're like childish. <laughs> you know, it is. This is daft, right? But um, so you know, I might end up going for a Twix or a double decker or something. You know, I feel like I'm constricted by some of the should stories that I have, and I feel like I might get judged for it. So if this can happen. Also, like another example I give in the book, if I'm crossing a road with a load of other people crossing a road and they start to cross the road, my first instinct is to go at the same time as they do, right? Rather than to think, is it safe for me to cross the road? So I think this kind of leads me on to another point here is that consent is an everyday thing. Consent is something that we all need to be thinking about more and thinking about thinking about it in terms of short stories, hegemony, power, scripts, gender, sexuality age and all of the intersecting oppressions that people might also um, experience it is something that affects us all every day about everything it's not just young people and it's not just about sex okay um, and I think that's a really important and key idea when we're also actually doing this work with young people because I think 
uh, you know, I've worked in, with young people for many years and listened to what they have to say to me about consent. And I know that they have a really, for the most part, they have a really nuanced and complex idea of how consent operates. And anyone doing this work as like a youth worker, which is my background, will also have that same experience. So there's no use making consent narratives to be way too basic and, and like we need to avoid doing like key message kind of sex education right with people um and we need to offer a space where people can challenge ideas uh, critique ideas understand where things come from and also practice some things like practice what it is to ask for your needs to be met to practice um uh to practice saying no but also to practice negotiating and practice asking um, practice tuning into each other to practice a more embodied version of consent uh, and I do that through one of the ways I do that is through the handshake activity that I developed with Meg John which is in the consent teaching pack and also in our book Enjoy Sex How When and if you want to oh, I'm going, I'm ranting about this I said I wouldn't talk for too long about this <laughs> but I think that really in my experience young people do get this much more than we think and are all served by this kind of say yes or no understanding of consent is complex it's nuanced and it seems to me that the young people you're working with there do kind of get it and yes it might be frustrating that they're not able to resist the strong societal messages about what it is that they should or shouldn't do but honestly isn't that also true of all of us like isn't this something that we also struggle with in which case the work needs to be much bigger okay and it's been much more challenging and much more interesting and that's what young people like and that's what young people are crying out for and the next and last question on this, what feels like a mammoth ask Justin episode, but it feels mammoth to me because you know I'm doing it, but I'm sure to you it feels like it's just flown by and you might even want to listen to it again. <laughs> uh, before I go on, I should just say, if you would like to support the the show, Culture Sex Relationships, this one is a free one. Um, uh, mostly uh, I have extended episodes. So all the episodes that you have on the free feed, SoundCloud, Ah, soundcloud.com forward slash culture sex relationships i put all the episodes up there the free versions are shorter though than the patreon episodes the patreon episodes usually apart from the advice ones like this one uh, have longer extended interviews and if you want to support the show and help me pay myself to do this show and also to pay guests to come onto the show please consider supporting the patreon patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships and you can give as much or as little as you can afford every month to support the show and get extra content. And yeah, okay, final question. In response to your invitation for questions for the podcast, I was thinking recently that maybe it's time to query user guides. Um, stay with me, dear listener, if you don't know what a user guide is, I will explain that in a second. Back to the question. I think to I think to the extent that they can help people reflect and focus on their own needs and desires, it's really helpful. But I think the concept is a bit limiting. It risks fixing people's understanding of their sexuality and propagating quite a static model of it. If you understand your sexuality as something that evolves over time and connecting with it, another person as something that has a possibility of revealing different aspects of it, I'm not sure how user guys could do this justice. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good question. I agree with quite a lot of it. Um, first of all, user guide. So this is a thing which has its background in like kink and poly and other non-normative communities through sex and relationships. The idea is simply that we um, we might write down our own way, our own ways of doing sex or doing our sexuality or doing relationships in a way that we might communicate 
communicate it first of all to ourselves, but then also communicate it to other people. What a lot of people have done, what I've done, is to create like a Google Doc, um, either by myself or something I might share uh, and work on together with a partner um, uh, to build a sense of um, where I am, what it is that I might like, what relationship, um, how, how to do relationships in, a, in a quite a, a granular kind of way. So it's not just saying, you know, putting a label on and saying, you know, I do ethical non-monogamy or I want monogamy and I want to live with a partner and I want to, you know, it's basically a way of just really opening up everything. So it's about looking at relationship dynamics and the kind of um, uh, whether, for example, whether we might be more of like a cat or a dog kind of person, whether we're like someone who's who always wants to be there for the other person is, is terribly loyal or someone is a little bit more avoidant. Uh, we might look at um, volume knobs, like which, which things are important in this particular relationship, which things are less important, how has that kind of changed over time. We might look at what our relationship mantra might be, like the, the reason why we're getting into a relationship, the, the key things that are important for us in a relationship and what it is that we want to aim for, uh, what might be red flags for us, for us in a relationship, that kind of thing. Anyway, I won't go on. But basically, um, in order for us to... Uh, to help to create these uh, kinds of documents for ourselves, Meg John and I created some zines, which you can find at our website, megjohnandjustin.com forward slash publications. We created um, a make your own relationship user guide zine. Then we did a make your own sex manual. I always get the titles for these wrong. And then understanding ourselves through erotic fantasies. Basically, they're workbooks to help you to think about where you're at with these things. And the big Thing about these is that what they do is they give us permission to start with a more radical approach to sexuality and relationships so instead of taking the template again i keep saying hegemony so um instead of just the common sense in inverted commas normal idea of how we should do sex or how we should do relationships instead what this does is to open up the possibilities for us to do something much more transformative much more consensual much more intentional okay rather than just taking a template it might be that the things that we want end up looking quite a lot like the template. They m might look quite normative. But the important thing here is tuning into our wants, needs, desires, wishes, thinking about what it is that we want and being able to communicate that to somebody else rather than going along with the normative script that we may or may not want. I'll come on to this again in a bit. So as a starting point, they do give this much more radical approach to being able to do lots of yeah, to do things that are very different, which I think is really powerful and really transformative. And I think something that we don't really think about enough. And we do also need like a counterbalance to not just the very strong stories that tell us about what is normal. Um, again, hegemonic or should stories or uh, in inverted commas norm, sec, uh, norms, normative scripts. But also the material circumstances of our lives are like they often have to be super normative. And so because houses are expensive, like living is expensive. And so it's it's we are pushed into this kind of quite normative, um, like nuclear kind of unit of, um, you know, the classic in London is um, two people in a relationship in a one bed flat. Right. It's really expensive to live by yourself. It's really expensive to live in a house in London if you're just two people. <laughs> so, um, so 
it the the material circumstances of our of a lot of our lives pushes in the way of normativity. So what this is is basically a way of doing something which is much more okay. Well, how can we do something we might actually want to do? How can we work with the material circumstances that we have? So for example, you could use some of these kinds of guides. And you probably should use use these guys as like a starting point if you want to do like a radical commune, for example, or if you're wanting to do uh, if you're wanting to do something like co-parenting or something which is um, which you, well actually co-parenting is a bad example because co-parenting is incredibly common. <laughs> uh, but it's but when you when you say co-parenting one way it sounds radical another it's not anyway it's probably for another episode. But there could be a really good starting point to do something very different. They counterbalance all of the social norms and the social scripts we have, but they also counterbalance the material circumstances in which people have to live their lives. So they're very, very, they can be very, very important. However, they can fix you. And so there is a danger of we write it down and we say, okay, this is me, I'm done. And so we've done that transformative work of figuring out what our wants, needs, desires, wishes are, and we've written them all down. And we're like, okay, that's me. We might even want to say, you know, well, I identify as this and that. That also means that I these given meanings. And so then we've immediately kind of fixed ourselves. I think what the listener, the questioner is kind of saying. And with that, I to an extent, to an extent, I really agree with that. I think that there is this danger of just rewriting our own scripts and fixing us in a way where we just don't, where we're not allowed to change ourselves anymore, or not allowed to recognise that we are constantly changing. We are all constantly changing, no matter whether we write it down or following a normative script. We're all changing. That is the one human condition that we all share in. Like, we are constantly changing. We're constantly influxing. We have to take that more seriously, and we don't as a society. I'll talk about a good, really good podcast to listen to about this in a second. Um, me and Meg John have actually already done a podcast about this uh, called Writing Our Own Scripts. I've got a link to that in the notes. Um, and so we need to be careful about just rewriting our own normative scripts. Meg John, in their fantastic book, Rewriting the Rules, has the, the story about crab buckets, which is really good. I won't, I won't retell that because we've talked about it a lot on the show, but also just go and get that book. There's a new second edition out now, as well as one of their many other books, Sexuality, A Graphic Guide, Hell, Care, Hell Yeah, Self-Care. Oh, they're two books that are out just this year. So, you know, I've had one book published. They've had two, so, you know... Um, they're the they're the uh, they're the famous writer. <laughs> uh, also, this is certainly my experience of writing a menu. Like I'm not going to uh, or uh, writing my own user guide. You know, I have done that in the past, and almost as soon as I've written them down, I've noticed oh that's no longer true. Which is why I sometimes put them in Google Docs because it's something I can always just go back and change and tweak and I notice different changes, and that's okay. Um, and I think that it's just really, it's sometimes important to, to notice, to, to even note that the act of writing something down has also changed something. So as well as fixing something in place, it, also, it simultaneously changes you because the act of writing down and thinking about this stuff changes you as well. It, that is also an effect. Everything is having an effect that is changing this, okay? <laughs> so... Um, you know, like writing them in pencil or doing drawings or mind maps or, or or kind of journaling about yourselves in a way which is really creative and has the opportunity for expansion uh, as well as detraction and going off in different directions, I think, is really important. So even like the, the way you think about creating your own user guide um, has the 
creative potential to um, to actually more accurately map onto what it is to be human. Um, but also, if we go back to thinking about consent again, again, this is something that Meg John and I have talked about on on the Meg John and Justin podcasts in the past. But if we think about, I think this goes for consent, but it also just goes for this too. If we think about you know the, the normative stories that we get about how we should do things and how that really restricts us, as well as potentially putting us in a position where we might do something we might not want to do. Um, uh, so if we have like the strong normative script and if we see the negotiating an entirely new thing as being um, a counterweight to that script and the, the possibility for us entirely writing our own thing, whether we do the first or the second or a combination of both, the really important thing is that we tune into what is happening all the way through. So we need this idea of like embodied ongoing relationships with ourselves, this like ongoing ever-changing relationship with ourselves and being in the moment with ourselves and noticing the changes and if we go to write down those changes noticing that the writing down of the change is also going to change us and that that by the time we've written something down it might no longer be true anymore which is to get to this kind of like ever nebulous thing of you know like you you go down to pick a stone up and then you in the act of picking up the stone you accidentally kick the stone forward and then you have to uh and then you go down to pick the stone up again you get stone forward yeah or a ball or something like that you know we are that the constant changing and shifting is just something which is true so don't be um frustrated by it and don't beat yourselves up around it just accept it as a a human condition thing um and stick with it and just notice what's going on for you in a way that feels valuable to you at the time or not does that make kind of make sense um, there's a really good podcast about this that I'd recommend you listening to. It's one on, I think it's the Deleuze and Guattari episode, or Deleuze and Guattari episode of uh, Culture Power Politics with Jeremy Gilbert. Um, it's really good on this. The ideas of being uh, molar, like molecular, and that everything on the planet is constantly changing and moving is a Deleuze Guattari idea really interesting it really i found it fascinating there are a lot of those themes that also come through in meg john's rewriting the rules which is an excellent book just go by that as well also the latest um uh, acfm which stands for acid communism or used to be acid corbinism um fm uh which is a leftist podcast um their latest one on desire is really good on this as well again they talk about um uh, Deleuze and Guattari there um, it's really interesting I just really like that podcast ACFM again there's a link to that in the show notes right that is it from me again if you would like to support the show please head over to patreon.com patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships help me make this a job for me help me pay people to come on the show there aren't that many shows like this out there about this kind of stuff so please do Support it if you can. If not, tell your friends about it. And I think that's all I've got to say. Yeah. Okay. Until next time. Bye then. <laughs>